Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis, support.greatdetectives.net. And you can become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month. Just go over to patreon.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it's time for this week's episode of Sam Spade. The original air date, January 5th, 1951, and the title is The Biddle Riddle Caper. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Sam Spade, Detective Agency. Me, sweetheart. Sam, where have you been? I don't know what to tell them. Tell who? The reporters, everybody. They all say you're the first private detective in the history of San Francisco to get rich honestly. Uh-huh. Oh, Sam, when I think of all the back salary I'll be getting, the fur coats I'll Easy, buy... girl, easy. Prepare yourself. Sam? Yep. You mean... The $50,000 is not available to employees of the network or sponsor, which unfortunately I happen to be. Sam! But cheer up, girl. Think of the taxes we'll save. Now, make everything fast. I'm on my way. Meanwhile, puzzle me this. You ready? All right, Sam. Why does a man who is going to blow his brains out set his mantle clock ahead four hours? Sam, it doesn't make sense. Ah, but it does. Mull and ponder, sweetheart. I'll be down in a trice, 1951 model, with an intellectual type report to challenge serious thinkers everywhere. To wit, the Biddle Riddle Caper. For NBC, William Spear, radio's outstanding producer, director of mystery and crime drama, brings you the greatest private detective of them all in The Adventures of Sam Spade. All alone by the microphone. If he... Never kick on the third down, Cherub. Give it another try. No, it's no use, Sam. I'm, I'm mentally through. Well, you know best. I, I just give up. Sam? Hmm? What are those funny little bumps on your cheek? <sighs> Go ahead, guess. Smallpox? Plague? You get more. Looks like a little waffle mark. That's what happens when somebody hits you with a microphone, sweetheart. <gasps> now, if you look closer, just above the marks, under my eye... Oh. Clearly and distinctly, in reverse, of course, the three letters of a network known far and wide for its hospitality to unemployed private detectives. You mean... Shh, not here, girl. Poise the pencil. Who knows? A sponsor may be listening. Ready? Yes, sir. To Mr. Tracy Abbott, Drake Carlton Hotel, copy to Dundee at Homicide, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the Biddle Riddle Caper. Dear Tracy, It had a nice conventional start, this one. A nice conventional phone call telling me to drop up to room 402 of the Drake Carlton around 3 in the afternoon. But when I got there, I found that over the nice conventional number on the door was hung a temporary sign reading, Olympic Radio Productions, Tracy Abbott, editor, director, and producer. 
Bidding farewell to the nice conventional part, I made bold to enter the door. Abbott, five foot eight of solid Hollywood, was waltzing with what I took to be a musician, composer, or some such. We open Cold Bunny like this. Now, killer at large. Banging with the theme. Theme. A great big wonderful chord there, Bunny. Check. Check. And then the teaser. Quote. Don't go away, you out there. Stick right close to that radio set of yours, because the next half hour might put $50,000 in your pocket. Yes, $50,000 will be paid by the sponsors of this program for information leading to the arrest and conviction of a... Killer at large. Tonight, that's it, sustain the chord. Tonight, the murder of Tremolo, Tremolo. Tonight, the murder of Carol Stevens. Then, check. What's that? Symbol crash. Do it again. Don't need it. Check. Check. Big, wonderful, lush. That's the word, lush. With scope and sweep and power. I got it. Well, I'll get as lush as I can with eight pieces. Scope, sweep, importance. Got to sound important. Check? Check. Uh, hmm? Oh, oh. I'm Sam Spade, Mr. Rabbit. Oh, yes, yes, Spade. Glad to see you. Please oh. sit down. No, on the other hand, you'd better stand up. No time to lose. You have 24 hours to find a man for me. Well, that's pretty short notice. How... Mr. How Spade, you... killer at large is real. We keep a sensitive finger on the pulse of the people. Well, that's nice. We deal in real facts, real people, real crimes, and real criminals. Check. Just how do you do this? How do you accomplish all this on the radio budget of today? Now, you see before you spade the mechanical marvel which makes this possible, the tape recorder. You're familiar with the tape recorder? Oh, more or less. Check. Tomorrow night at 9 p.m. PST, with the aid of the tape recorder, we shall reconstruct one of San Francisco's more sensational unsolved crimes. The murder of Carol Stevens. You mean the burlesque Dane three years ago? Two years, eight months, and 29 days. You remember much about it? Well, let me see. She turned up dead on the floor of her apartment, didn't she? Check. Victim of the well-known blunt instrument. Mm. In this case, a bronze bookend carrying the base relief of Abraham Lincoln. Much ado, much ado. Headlines by the yard. A parade of witnesses, but no arrests, period. Fine. Now, what about me? Our show's spade is made up of the simple, honest, spontaneous statements of the witnesses themselves. Mm-hmm. We're set on this one except for one man, the most important one in the case, of course. Oh, who's that? Jimmy Biddle, the doorman at the Broadway burlesque at the time the Stevens girl was killed. Oh. Knew her, some say he loved her. Top suspect until he came up with an alibi. Our advanced men have combed the city for two weeks trying to find him, but no luck. So he's born time. That's what I thought. Until this morning. You mean you've heard from him? I heard from someone who said he was Biddle. He also said he knew who killed Carol Stevens. And he wanted the 50000 Right. I mean, check. Oh, fair enough. Well, that's what you advertise, isn't it? Not to people who hang up when you get curious. Hmm? If it was Biddle, I've got to record his story. I want him here by 8 tomorrow night. Check. Well, since you keep bringing it up, check. Yes. You can make it out for 100 bucks. At Homicide, I cased the files on the Stevens thing. San Francisco's answer to the Black Dahlia. A cheap killing of a cheap dame in a cheap apartment that used a lot of expensive newsprint. She'd taken her last turn under the blue spot around 10.30, left the theater, and hustled straight home. Because at 11 sharp, according to the neighbor across the hall, someone had tried the Abraham Lincoln bookend on Carol for size. She hit the floor just as the 11 o'clock news came on. Biddle's alibi had to be good, and it was. It came, as a matter of fact, from the greatest little alibi factory in town. 
Biddle was drinking old fashions with Joseph P. Norgard, the well-known criminal lawyer at the time of the killing. So I trotted over to Norgard's office on Market Street, found him tied up, and settled down in the waiting room next to a gimlet-eyed youth in a neon-striped suit who looked like he made a living sticking up crap games. He was filing his nails. Uh, buddy. Yeah, buddy? You, uh, you sure you're in the right office, buddy? Positive, buddy. <laughs> I just thought I might save you some trouble, that's all. Sam Spade, ain't it? Well, you're a smart kid. I try hard. <laughs> I still think you'd be wise to blow. You know, this is quite a turn you do, buddy. Study nights with Richard Woodmark. Sam, I told you I want to save you a bad time. You're a nice guy. Thank you. Must be a lot of things you can do around town to make a buck without coming here. Now, why don't you lift it out of that chair... I'm not going to do it, Mr. Norgard. And that's fine. I'll get with you later. Bye, buddy. The guy who bustled out of Norgard's office was flabby, florid, and frightened. Penstripe gave me a last baleful look and sidled out into the hall after him, which was nice because I was running out of punchlines. Luke, I thought I told you to... Oh. Mr. Norgard? I am? I'm sorry to barge in. My name's Spade. I'm a private detective. Of course you are. And a hungry one. Well, we're polite in here, too. Why do you say that? You're the fourth today. Oh? I'm about to prepare a mimeograph statement entitled, What I Know About the Stevens Case, or You Too Can Make $50,000. Like a copy? You know, I can't remember when I've been treated so nice. What do you know about the Stevens case, Mr. Norgard? It's all in the homicide file. On the fateful night, I ran into Jimmy Biddle as I was coming out of a bar in Chinatown. He'd hit the skids. But he used to be a useful friend, so I asked him up to my apartment for a drink. Was he? Sat him in a chair, made him an old-fashioned, loaned him five bucks, and hustled him out. Mm-hmm. Total elapsed time, 45 minutes, from 10.45 to 11.30 p.m. And that is all I have to say at this time. Have you seen Biddle since? Not since the investigation. I don't know where he is now, and I don't know who killed Carol Stevens. Period. Paragraph. Do you think Jimmy knows who killed him? Maybe. Well, he says he does. Oh? Where did you see him? He's hungry, too. We work the same breadline. Uh, I'm sorry I said that, Spade. Who are you working for? Olympic Radio Productions. Killer at large. Yes? <laughs> they want me to come to the studio tonight and record a statement for them. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I wonder if I ought to tell them what I really think. What's that? About Biddle. There's no point in talking around it anymore. I think he killed her. Well, that's a neat trick if he was drinking your liquor at the time. Oh, I think he did it after he left my place. Two things placed the time of death. The medical examiner's report, which could be off as much as three hours. And the neighbor who thinks he heard the girl fall as the news came on. How reliable is that? Well, they usually think of those things during an investigation. Hmm, but they didn't think hard enough. You, uh... You say you talked to Biddle? He called my client. Why? He had 50,000 good reasons, according to him. You know, funny things happen when the dough gets into it. Bought people don't stay bought. Lost people get found. Yeah. Well, I've told you all I know, Spade, if you have no more questions. And just one more. Who's the little weasel in the pinstripe? <laughs> you mean Luke? Yeah. Oh, I put him out there to scare off the hungry ones. Nothing to do with you. And the fat character he's tailing has nothing to do with me either, huh? You really want to know? Love to. He's a pastry cook. <laughs> I'm representing his wife in a divorce action. Thinks he's Casanova. Pressure cooker, eh? 
Shoving Norgard, Pinstripe, and the flabby pastry cook in the look-up-later section of my hat band, I took off for Biddle's last known address, a boarding house on Pacific Avenue. There I held hands with the landlady long enough to learn that A, she hadn't seen Biddle since a few weeks after the murder, but B, when last heard of, Biddle had gone on from the burlesque dame to something even more extremely female. According to the landlady... Named Rosalie. Understand she's working on the line at the Pacific Ballroom. Red hair, blue eyes, and boom, boom. You get me? <laughs> I got you. Pacific Ballroom, eh? Uh, would you do that last again? Boom, boom. Yeah, just checking. Thanks, Mrs. Landlady. <laughs> Hello? Hi. Am I the lucky girl? Well, you look like your name ought to be Rosalie. Oh, you're psychic. Got your tickets? Here, let me, uh, let me know when they're used up, huh? Don't worry. Hey. You know you're a pretty good dancer? Arthur Murray, class of 1906. <laughs> Only I, uh, I didn't come here to dance. Uh, oh. I'm looking for Jimmy Biddle, you know him? Yeah, yeah, I know him. You a cop? Not exactly. Oh, what's the difference, cop or no cop? You'll find him one of these days. Where? In the bay, maybe. Or the morgue. He knows it. That's the funny part. He knows it and he can't do anything about it. It's got him. Rosalie, baby, look, I'm out. That's enough about Jimmy. Let's dance, huh? That's what you're paying for, isn't it? Well, come on. Where is he? You're wasting your time. I... I won't sell him out. I'm through with them, but I won't sell them out. Ah, oh, here. Here's your tickets. I sauntered over to the soft drink fountain and mulled the problem over a Coke for a minute or two. There are ways of dealing with dames like Rosalie. Some of them are a little cruel, as this one was going to have to be, but time was of the essence. I kept out of sight for 20 minutes or so, watching her dancing in the arms of a moonstruck plumber, then sidled into a phone booth. The Pacific Ballroom does not permit telephone conversations while the girls are working. When I said it was the police, the plumber was turned over to a new candidate, and Rosalie came to the phone. Hello? This is Sam Spade, Rosalie. I was dancing with you a little while ago. What is it? I, uh, I found Jimmy Biddle's apartment. Oh? What's the matter? He's hurt? That's right. Uh, bad? I'm afraid so. He wants to see you. Oh, okay. I'll be right over. <laughs> She didn't stop for a rap, just plowed a zigzag furrow through the mob at the main door and climbed into a cab at the curb. The driver must have been an old fan of hers because they were almost out of sight by the time my cab got rolling, and that's the way it was across Market Street and all the way out Van Ness to the marina. Her cab was pulled up in front of an apartment on Jefferson Street, and she'd just gotten out when we slid in behind them. Hiya, you want to go up together? But, but you said you... I'm sorry, honey. I know it was a dirty trick, but... Now, that's no way to be here. You shut up. The gold card holder by the doorbell listed the tenant as W.R. Smith. Mr. Smith was evidently not home. The lady manager in the apartment next to his was, and after the usual license showing and more than the usual sweet talk, she came up with the key. Biddle wasn't wealthy, but he wasn't hungry either place had the well-fixed man-about-town look, right down to the last crystal martini glass in the portable bar in the living room. Next to it was a mahogany desk, 
in which were sundry checkbooks and deposit slips indicating Biddle had found a prosperous widow or had been doing rather well at Canasta. A clock chimed four in the next room. Since it was after ten, I wondered why I went in to take a look. Maybe I was psychic, like the girl said. There was a tape recorder against one wall, the same kind I'd seen in your office, Tracy, with a microphone and a roll of tape in it, half used up. Holding the microphone with one hand was Jimmy Biddle. In the other hand, a thirty-eight. He wasn't hurt, as I'd told her. He was dead. You are listening to the weekly adventure of radio's most famous detective, Sam Spade. This Sunday, there's another outstanding production by Theater Guild on the air. It's a one-hour adaptation of the thrilling tale of intrigue in post-war Vienna, The Third Man. Joseph Cotton and Senior Hasso star in this Theater Guild on-the-air broadcast. And Sunday over most of these NBC stations also means the big show, an hour and a half of the finest in comedy, music, and drama. Tallulah will be your hostess, and just listen to a few of the stars. Fred Allen, Marlena Dietrich, Danny Thomas, and Fran Warren. There'll be many more, too, so tune in this Sunday and every Sunday for The Big Show. Now, back to the Biddle Riddle Caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. In accordance with Chapter 5 of the Private Detective's Manual entitled How to Keep Your License, I called Homicide and gave him the facts and figures, then went back to the study. Jimmy Biddle was surrounded by props like Part 1 of a photocrime puzzle. I carefully reached over his shoulder and pressed the button on the tape recorder. My name's Jimmy Biddle. The DA will remember me. We saw a lot of each other during the week after Carol Stevens hit the deck in her apartment three years ago. At just about this time of night. I fooled him then. I could probably go on fooling him, but I'm tired of it. I'm tired of living this way. So here it is. I knew Carol Stevens well. I was crazy about her. And I was jealous, too. That's why I killed her. Thought I could go on and on, playing hide-and-go-seek for the rest of my life, but sooner or later, this kind of thing gets too heavy to pack around it. You gotta get rid of it. One way or another. Period. End of report. I rousted the landlady again, and we went over the room together. A helpful-type landlady. She contributed a thousand-odd bits of gossip about Jimmy Biddle, only one of which struck me as interesting. She'd come in this morning, she said, to clean his apartment, and among other things, had wound and set the eight-day clock on the mantel, the same clock which was now exactly four hours fast. Looking closer at the tape recorder, I saw a small label pasted above one of the knobs, reading, Morgas and Reed, recording technicians. Next scene, the manufacturing section of Sansom Street, a five-story building, all dark at this hour, except for a light in the office on the second floor back, which happily turned out to be the one. Burgess? Reed? Anybody? Hello. What, what do you want? Well, the pastry cook. Uh, I, I'm sorry. We're closed, you see. Office hours, nine to five. Now, wait I... a minute. Just a minute, pastry cook. I'm, I'm... I'm not a pastry cook, sir. My name is Murgis. I am one of the proprietors here. I... Just a moment, sir. I sorry, must ask you to... sorry. It was getting cold out in the hall. 
Oh, so you're Murgis, huh? I am. And I don't care who you are. I know all about it, sir. I know it wasn't a practical joke. What wasn't a practical joke? That tape. You can march right back to the man you're working for and tell him he can't buy me off. Is that clear? Not very. There's no use denying it. I saw you in his office this afternoon when he... when he threatened me. He... Oh, what, what you Get do? down, Murgis! What is it? Oh! I crawled out on the fire escape in time to see my buddy in the pinstripe suit hit the bottom. The alley, praise be, was blind at one end, so Luke took off toward the street. I caught him in one leg. He stumbled, fell, smacked his head against the brick wall of the alley and took the count. I was frisking him when a foul cop who'd heard the shots moved up. I convinced him I wasn't rolling a drunk and left him to run back upstairs. Morgus? Morgus! Yeah. I better get you to a hospital. Who, who are you? Sam Spade. I don't work for Norgard. Right now I'm trying to hang a murder rap on him. Told me it was a practical joke. A gag. What? Tape. Jimmy Biddle. Tape. Jimmy rented the machine from you and made the tape himself, right? Yes. He... Norgard. What about Norgard? Tried to beat me into it. Beat beat me. I wouldn't give it to him. Give what? Time. Tape. No, no. Tape. Tape. He tried to point to the desk as he passed out, and so to this already bubbling stew, we had a crucial typewriter. While waiting for the ambulance, I cased it and found nothing. Then stuck a piece of paper into it and began to type. Four quick brown foxes had jumped over four lazy dogs when the sound changed. I looked closer, then tackled a messy job I always leave to my secretary. I hate to play with typewriter ribbons, but this wasn't a typewriter ribbon. Since said ribbon had come to an end, and I was pecking away at a piece of sound tape. Come on, Rosalie. No, I don't want to talk. Look, come on. My feet are even more tired than they were an hour ago. Okay, you first. All right, now. I'm sorry, Mr. Spade. I thought you were lying when you said Jimmy was hurt. Look, let's I'm... not go into that now. He was blackmailing Norgard, right? I don't even know who Norgard is. You know Jimmy was shaking someone down, didn't you? I never knew where he got his money. I just know it was dirty money. He'd laugh and say he was living high, but not so long. He never mentioned Norgard? No, he... He just said he was going to make $50,000 on a radio program. Did he say how? Singing. I thought he was kidding, then he showed up with that tape recording. Well, he wasn't kidding. Then what? He wanted to be alone, he said. He was going to make an audition and send it to a sponsor. That's where he made the mistake. He sent it to the wrong sponsor. Huh? He figured to hit Norgard for the biggest touch of all. Thought hearing it might make him dig deeper. So he recorded his statement, sent it to Norgard for a sample. But there was something he didn't think of. What do you mean? He should have studied up on his tape recorders, baby. With a pair of scissors and a good technician, Jimmy's eyewitness account turned into a first-class confession. The final phase of the Biddle Riddle was, as you will recall, Tracy enacted on one of the sound stages of the nation's leading network, where, as you will also recall, you were busily transcribing the testimony of various witnesses on the Carol Stevens case. How you got him there, I'll never know. But there he was, as big and legal-looking as ever, perjuring himself once more into one of your microphones. I walked out of the Twin Dragon on Grant Avenue. As I remember it now, 
Riddle was across the street. He apparently recognized me, though, hey, and... Excuse me, will you, fellas? What? Oh. Hey, you idiot. You ruined it. I'm sorry, Tracy. Oh, we'll have to start it over again, Mr. Norgard. Would you mind if I record a few remarks? Spade, please understand my position. Biddle's confession has changed everything. I know. The killer is not at large. Yeah, yeah. 24 hours we spent recording the show. Now it'll all have to be done over again. I'm sorry. These sir. people at this house... Listen, Tracy. All right, Spade, what is it? I'm only trying to help. Now, where's Biddle's confession? On the machine there. We're going to dub it onto the main tape. Good. Now, be a good lad and show me where you're starting to stop it, huh? Right there. Okay. So, what is this, Spade? This is going to interest you, Mr. Norgard. Now, let us turn to the tape, keeping our eyes on the spool as it slowly feeds Jimmy Biddle's last statement. My name's Jimmy the Biddle. Amplifier. The DA will remember me. We saw a lot of each other during the week after Carol Stevens hit the deck in her apartment three years ago. At just about this time of night. I fooled him then. I could probably go on fooling him, but I'm tired of it. I'm tired of living this way. So here it is. I knew Carol Stevens well. I was crazy about her. And I was jealous, too. That's why I... There's a riddle for you, Norgard. He said the girl died, quote, at just about this time of night, unquote. But the clock struck three times. We know she died at 11. What happened to the other eight chimes? Spade, this is no time Be patient for... with me, Tracy. What about it, Norgard? Well, how do I know? The man was crazy, maybe. No, 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 no. He wasn't crazy. Stupid, but not crazy. So we take this spool of tape off and put this one... What's that? This is the part that was cut out. Got it from the guy who did the splicing job for you, thinking it was a practical joke or something. Sam, do you know what you're saying? Yeah, but Biddle says it better. The last thing we heard was I was crazy about her, and I was jealous, too. That's why I killed her. Only he didn't say killed her. Just, that's why I... Well, standing outside in the hallway of her apartment the night she died, I'd seen her leave the theater with a guy I recognized. And I followed him home to her place. Heard the argument, everything, but I had no idea he'd kill her until I heard her hit the floor. Door busted open then, and he came out looking like a crazy man. He didn't even see me. He just ran down the back stairs as fast as he could go. I went in and saw her lying on the floor dead. I could have killed him then, but I thought of something better. He's good pay. The cash comes right on time. But I'm tired of living this way. So there's the story. The man who killed Carol Stevens... That's an expensive Which is as far as Biddle's got, since Norgard had grabbed a stand mic and slammed it into the recording machine. In the rhubarb which followed, he also slammed it into my face, which is why I carry the imprint of the nation's number one network just below my right eye. So that's about the crop, Tracy. Norgard and Pinstripe now lie cheek by jowl in the jail hospital, trying to think of an honest lawyer who'll defend them. While you, Tracy, with a third round of interviews before you, are considering tossing out Carol Stevens and doing the shooting of Dan McGrew. Period. End of report. Sam, how unfortunate. Unfortunate? You never got to explain about the clock. It was four hours fast. Why, sweetheart, that's self-explanatory. The clock said four, you see. Yes. But it was twelve. It'll have been dead an hour, which makes it eleven. Carry one one. Subtracting four from that leaves seven. Seven. And assuming he'd been there an hour before that makes six. Hmm. Sam, what relentless logic. Just like Ellery Queen. Effie. On this program, we do not plug rival products. Now, go and pipe that up while I figure this out. Scoot, scoot. Yes. 
three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's mystery and music every Saturday on NBC. For mystery tomorrow, Herbert Marshall stars as The Man Called X. The Man Called X is a man without a name who travels the world over combating the forces of international espionage and intrigue. For music tomorrow, your hit parade brings you the top tunes in the land, played by Raymond Scott's orchestra and with vocals by Snooky Lanson and Eileen Wilson. Thank you, dear one. I uh, see by the furrows in your brow that you have not as yet solved the matter of the missing chimes. Oh, why Norgard set the clock ahead when he shot Jimmy Biddle? Hmm. How to approach this? You realize Norgard cut a hunk out of the tape, yes. removing Biddle's eyewitness account, setting him up as a suicide, right? But, Sam... Don't make me change my grip. Though Biddle, by his own statement, made the recording at the time of the murder of Carol Stevens, to wit, 11 o'clock. Now, in cutting out the crucial words, Norgard also had to cut out eight chimes. This, he realized, would be noticed. So he set the clock ahead to make the number of chimes jibe. <gasps> chimes jibe. Chimes jibe. Nice ring. Sam, hmm? will it be all right with you if I just say I understand when I really don't? Sure, sweetheart. I'll just type and answer the phone and you use your feet and your head. And together we'll end up... I know, with... Good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade are produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade was played by Stephen Dunn. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. Script for tonight's adventure by Harold Swanton. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbruster. Join us again next week, same time, for another adventure with Sam Spade. Enjoy the magnificent Montague, then Duffy's Tavern on NBC. Welcome back. Well, a really interesting episode. I have to admit that I did laugh quite a bit in the scene where the producer and his flunky were rehearsing the program and doing their sound effects. That was really funny. Now, the radio program that's being portrayed here actually had a real-life parallel. In 1950, CBS did a summer replacement series called Somebody Knows, which covered unsolved crimes and used a combination of real-life interviews and reenactments to lay out the evidence of the crime and offered a reward in hopes that a case would be solved. 
I don't think it was quite $50,000, but that was on CBS, and that was the reference to the most popular network and the impression being left on Sam. And that's the great thing about radio. On television, they never would have had uh, Sam Spade made up to have an impression of the CBS microphone logo on his person because they'd be afraid they'd get in trouble. But on radio, they can give us an impression without coming out and saying it, and we are imagining the logo on Sam. So, uh, really clever there. Now, it should be mentioned that Somebody Knows was not the only sort of true crime uh, series that was on as a summer replacement. Uh, in 1950, NBC offered its own series, Wanted, which was about uh, criminals who were fugitives from justice rather than crimes that were unsolved. We actually did uh, an episode of both series as part of the Summer of Summer Replacement Amazing World of Radio series that we did a couple of years back. Now, of course, this was a new thing for people listening in 1950. As someone who grew up watching America's Most Wanted with John Walsh and Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack back in the 80s and 90s, it's a weird feeling of not so much nostalgia, but of witnessing the birth of a genre of series that you know quite well. I imagine that they would have had other ways of verifying that there were splices on the tape uh, because that's not something that you could do seamlessly back in 1951. But they went ahead with this way because it was really dramatic, I guess. The reference to Ellery Queen as an Rival product was interesting, but lacks a little bit of the punch of the sort of references uh, from the Duff era, because Ellery Queen was not a radio detective series at this point. It was off the air in the late 1940s. But it was on television. So whether that joke counts or not kind of depends on whether you think that TV detectives and radio detectives are rivals. Now we turn to listener comments and feedback. This is for an episode we posted a while ago now, but I think it's still fair game. This is regarding the farmer's daughter caper. And Kenneth writes, I loved Effie's ending. And I do too. Uh, for those who don't remember, uh, Sam gave the conclusion of the report in which the Local police were actually the ones who saved the day, but Effie rewrote it so that he had some sort of action hero conclusion. And I like it uh, because not only was it funny, but it also speaks to uh, what Effie thinks of and sees in Sam. So that was definitely a nice touch. Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank Lewis. Lewis has been one of our Patreon supporters since March of 2018, currently supporting the program at the Master Detective level of $15 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Lewis. 
And that will do it for today. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software and be sure to rate and review wherever you download us from. We'll be back next Monday with another episode of Sam Spade, but join us back here tomorrow as we start another Yours Truly Johnny Dollar serial where... Please help me. Are you talking to me? Yes, please. On your way, mister. This is private. You hear me? <laughs> Just keep your hands to yourself, bud. Well, keep rolling, then. We're having a little argument, private. Please, please, I don't know who you are, but I'm... Shut up. She's uh, had a little too much to drink, mister, that's all. Oh, that's so? Well, it doesn't look that way to me. Now, what's this all about? I just told you, nosy, she's had a little too much to drink. Now, go on, bud, get on your way. Wait a minute, I told you to keep your hands to yourself. Yeah. Honey, want to keep it up? I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash greatdetectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.